Hello, once again, welcome back to the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Greyhawk. And I'm your co-host, Jack Snefflin. Thank you for joining us for episode 13 of our prep school bracket. This week, we will be discussing 1989's Dead Poets Society along with 2008's Wild Child. I feel like this is very much a case of no one would ever put these two together. That happens a lot in our brackets. Usually it happens a bit earlier on, but I don't know, Wild Child has kind of just been this bracket dark horse. Yeah, I think part of it is that it keeps going up against things that are maybe not the strongest contenders. Yeah, because it went up against St. Trinian's, which is a good movie, but it didn't have as much depth as Wild Child does. And then before that, it went up against Finding Forrester, which we both just did not appreciate. Yeah, wow, I I, could, I was trying to remember what it was. I've forgotten Finding Forrester was a thing. It's <laughs> That movie was so long. And at least it wasn't Emperor's Club. See, Emperor's Club at least has a decent need to, like, be over faster. <laughs> I feel like Finding Forrester had the energy of Emperor's Club, but, like, stretched out longer. See, for me, Finding Forrester at least had some interesting cinematography and everything going on with the two main characters was interesting. That's fair. And it did give us the Avatar of Basketball, whose name we never <laughs> learned. <gasps> no, we have not. I was supposed to do that for this episode. Oh, well... <laughs> is the avatar that's who he is master of all four elements basketball baseball football and parcheesi but we're not talking about the avatar of sport we're talking about dead poet society but we are in the semifinals, which is usually when we get into the production of these films and kind of talk a little bit about who's behind them who is responsible yeah so for Dead Poets Society, we have director Peter Weir. Uh, he's an Australian filmmaker. He's had a you know very long career. Galapole, which is a Australian film, uh, kind of this historical adventure, is kind of the go-to reason why Mel Gibson's career started. That eventually led him into the role of Mad Max, which then led to Lethal Weapon, and then you know the rest of his storied career. He eventually had some pretty big U.S. hits with Witness and The Mosquito Coast. After that, was trying to do more uh, stuff in the U.S. film market. Eventually, what happened is Jeffrey Katzenberg. Yes, that Jeffrey Katzenberg. Mm, wait, this has the cats on it? Why? It's a touchstone picture. Sorry, that's weird. It seems so, like, uncommercial. Whatever. Yeah. I mean, that's why it's a touchstone picture. Yeah. Um. But he hands him the script right before he goes back to Australia. And, you know, as he's got the script on the plane, he's reading through it, gets to Sydney. Six weeks later, he's back uh, doing principal casting for the main roles. That makes sense to me. I think that the story of Dead Post Society is incredibly compelling. And I can understand how if you already have the script nailed down, it's very easy to see how it would unfold. Yeah. And he'd go on to do um, a few other interesting things. The Truman Show. And uh, Mastering Commander were points of note for me. Mm, sure. Writer we talked a little bit about is Tom Schulman. He was influenced to write the screenplay based off of Teacher that he had at his preparatory school mm. in Nashville. He's had a honestly pretty small career. He's mostly known for this, rewriting the script to Honey, I Shrunk the Kids in seven days. He turned it from a drama to a comedy. <laughs> that was going to be a drama? Yeah. <laughs> Okay, I do want to see that. The interesting thing is, after you point that out to me, I'm like, okay, that is that is why the film is the way it is in certain places. Mm -hmm. Right, like it definitely has the potential in there. It's in that kind of vein of 
funny but has heart that really works but i can't imagine it being a played straight drama you really shrinking and drama don't really go together there's a reason ant-man is the comedy guy and he's had a few other writing credits but nothing like that big he has one director credit for a movie called eight heads in a duffel bag it stars joe pesci as a mobster who is transporting a duffel bag full of severed heads across the united states well i have to stop this podcast and watch that now i know right (laughs) only other real thing of note outside of dead poets is he served as the vp of the uh, wga west for two years the elections right after the writer's strike also in uh when he wrote the original script he had keating battling cancer and there was actually a scene with him kind of like on his deathbed in the hospital Mm. we're thankfully removed it to focus on what keating stood for as opposed to like focusing on the illness yeah, I think that Keating works a lot better as the sort of... It's not that he has no history. You can definitely glean bits of pieces of him from what we see. He doesn't need to be a character with plot. He needs to be a character with an arc, but not necessarily with like a plot yeah. of his own. And we've talked about this, how Keating's not really the main character of the story. It's Neil, it's Todd, and giving him that illness would take away from that. And I think the film would be weaker overall because of it. I think also if his season day mentality also came from a certain I'm going to die so none of this matters, it would feel less radical for these kids. I don't know, it kind of just cheapened things, you know? Yeah, I definitely feel you because they're like, okay, there's this outside influence that is pushing him towards this lifestyle and this mentality as opposed to no, this is what he feels is best even outside of I am going to die very soon. And even during his first class where he's talking about because we are food for worms, lads. Because believe it or not, each and every one of us in this room is one day going to stop breathing, turn cold, and die. Like, there's bits and pieces of that understanding that death is coming. It's just not as imminent. Right. Also, because death is so far off for all these kids, and it makes Neil's death more impactful, it feels more sudden. Like, in an action movie, you assume death is on the table. Mm-hmm. You don't really assume that in a movie about kids. Mm-hmm. Then, last person I want to talk about is a cinematographer, John Seal. He's also Australian. He's a longtime collaborator with Weir, but he's worked on various other things as well. Really storied career. He's been nominated for Oscars five times. He worked on Rain Man, The English Patient, which he actually won the, the Oscar for. Mm. He's also worked on Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone and Prince of Persia, The Sands of Time. What? And he also came out of retirement to do the cinematography for Mad Max Fury Road. Oh, man. Wow. Oh, a hero, a legend. That movie is gorgeous. Yeah. I think we could like just spill the beans and yeah, the time travel bracket is not a separate timeline. (laughs) Those will be coming again shortly, probably after we finish up this bracket. Right. Or, you know, maybe they're already here, (laughs) really, in our hearts. (laughs) But it's amazing that this guy has now managed to bridge three brackets into one. Well, not brackets. So the Harry Potter is not its own bracket. It just feels like one. Yeah. I think he also worked on Master and Commander, though, so... Well, there we go. I mean, Weir did. I'm not sure if Seal did. But between the two of them, yeah, bridging three brackets. Right. It's still a good, like, six degrees of separation thing happening mm-hmm. here. But that makes sense. Like, those are very varied movies visually. <laughs> he clearly has a good sense of what these films need to look like. Prince of Persia, not the strongest film I've ever seen. But it looks good. Like, it's a very beautiful movie to look at. My problems with the film were not the cinematography. I think... The ability to capture that video gamey feel was really strong there. And we have a good variety of locations and 
and the ways the light moves and all that jazz, which isn't always easy to do. Mm-hmm. So good job. Honestly, if you told me he was doing a movie, I would be way more inclined to go see it. If we could see movies in theaters. <laughs> Unfortunately, he's retired. He specifically came out of retirement for Mad Max Fury Road. And I honestly, I don't expect him to come out of retirement a second time. Ending on that high note is perfect. Watching come out of Mad Max Fury Road for the sequel is about the old ladies. You know, fair enough. <laughs> I can dream. Anybody else note besides, you know, Robin Williams and all the actors we know about? Uh, speaking of Robin Williams, I do want to talk a little bit about who was uh, in the running for Mr. Keating. Oh, no. So, actually, before Weir was brought on to direct, Liam Neeson had been cast for the role. Oh, horrible. It just would not have worked well. And then, eventually, Robin Williams got the role, but before then, others that were considered Dustin Hoffman and Tom Hanks, who would have been different, but I think both would have been good choices. Ram, who Dustin Hoffman is? Uh, he played uh, Captain Hook and Hook. Tootsie, mm, yeah. yeah. I can see Tom Hanks in this. It would have become more of a Tom Hanks movie, and I, th- I don't know if I need that. Yeah. Dustin Hoffman would have been interesting. I mean, a wackier movie. But that could also have worked really well with yeah. the, the death twist. So, yeah, yeah like, those are good choices. Yeah, Bo- both of them, I'm like, okay, I can see what you're going for. However, Mickey Rourke was also being considered, and I'm just like, what? <laughs> I'm sorry, What? <laughs> Mickey Rourke was in the running to play Mr. Keating at one point. Wow. That said, I am here for the idea of doing a remake of this with just really good casting apart from Mr. Keating. Just a horribly miscast Mr. Keating. The Rock. Dwayne The Rock Johnson is Mr. Keating. I mean, what I was what I was thinking about casting Mickey Rourke as Mr. Keating's like it'd be like casting Vin Diesel as Mr. Keating. <laughs> That's the pacifier. I know. You're thinking of the pacifier. I know. Would have been a good choice then. Excellent. I love the pacifier. It's one of my favorite movies as a kid. And that's why I'm gay. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, so that's kind of some of the history behind the production of this. I can see how a lot of the ways this movie worked come from the very talented people behind it who brought their own vision. I can see how it all connects, but with a good harmony between them. It's really easy to see when the director wants one thing, the cinematographer wants something else, the writer mm-hmm. had something else in mind. And here we have this, like, it feels like either everybody was on the same page or everybody was, like, brought something new that really added on really well. Mm-hmm. There's an element here that when we get into some of Neil's stuff, especially the stuff with his suicide, there's a kind of fairy tale feel to it. And in a lot of fairy tale analysis, the kind of, like, highfalutin stuff you read when you're studying, like, your Bettelheims, your Youngs, etc., you get into this kind of what it means that characters know or do things. Mm-hmm. And when they're talking about going to find the cave to have the Dead Poet Society, Neil talks about how he just already knows where it is. Where's this cave he's talking It's beyond about. the stream. I know where it is. It's miles. He's not looking at a map or anything. He just has that knowledge for whatever reason. And that feels very much like the kind of fairy tale thing where the mother knows the way through the woods because she has some kind of inherent connection with nature or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I think looking at this film as having a bit more of a quasi-magical vibe to it or having not quite magical realism but that same kind of runs more on story than on Adam's energy that you see in things like I don't know the Goonies or whatever Mm -hmm. makes me a little bit more inclined to forgive some of Keating's mistakes because it makes me understand that he's meant to be kind of the trickster mentor like the the wizard the Baba Yaga it's interesting that you mentioned fairy tales and whatnot and I think it it works incredibly well playing into Neil cast as Puck later on oh yeah for sure they do a lot of really interesting stuff with that. 
the first being Puck's final lines at the end of the play. If we shadows have offended, think but this and all is mended, that you have but slumbered here while these visions did appear, and this weak and idle theme no more yielding but a dream. The way that that is shot and filmed, it's recontextualized as apologizing to his father. Mm -hmm. And it's such an interesting use and reinterpretation of these classic lines to fit the narrative of the film. I can't remember where it's from, but there's, I want to say it's like a, like a masterpiece of mystery or whatever. Uh, an actor in universe is complaining about how he has to give the King Lear speech, but make people think they've never heard it before. And I think it's always a really big challenge, especially with things like Shakespeare, making these lines feel new. And this is a really good example of how when you really understand what you're working with, you can recontextualize and do something new with it. And that's really, like, cool. You mentioned, like, Shakespeare and making it feel new. And I just watched Philosophy Tube's most recent video, and they touch on how not everyone wants Shakespeare to feel new. And I want to talk about that, but I will <laughs> save that for later. <laughs> Listeners, go watch Ollie's video. It, it's excellent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, like, there's other things as well. The way that the build-up to Neil's suicide is filmed, it feels less like a suicide and more like a sacrifice. And we've talked about that before, but it's such a it's such an evocative scene. It just it's so unlike the rest of the movie that it kind of helps you understand that Neil is in this very heightened mental state. The only other scene that is like it is when they're all running to the cave the first time and you kind of get how outside of the normal thought patterns of the rest of the world Neil is. I think it's a really good way to do your cinematography. It does not surprise me that you have this really good cinematographer for this. Yeah. Um, because I think if that was just slowly shot and it didn't have the, the slowness of the camera, the long cuts, the long shadows, that eerie music, it would feel just overwrought and drawn out. Like if it was like just a sad song playing, it would just mm -hmm. feel fake. Yeah. And while we're talking about Neil, I do want to get into the relationship that Neil has with his father. Because it really only comes into play at the beginning and the ends of the film. Mm -hmm. And when we're first introduced to Mr. Perry, it's him kind of invading Neil's space after he starts moving in. And the parents are kind of supposed to be leaving their kids for the, the semester. Mm -hmm. And he enters the room and literally all of his friends attempt to stand at attention. Father, I thought you'd gone. Mr. Sir, sir. Keep your seats, fellas. Keep your seats. And you get this sense that they know exactly what Neil's dad is like. And they're trying to not anger him and to make things easier on Neil. And I really appreciate that small little touch because like, there are definitely parents that... I knew in my friend group in high school that we definitely did that because we knew how much of an asshole they were to their kids. Mm -hmm. And also you kind of feel powerless to do anything about that. Yeah. Like you can't, you can support them before and after, but not during, and you can't take them away from it. Yeah. So all you can do is placate their parents as much as possible, or in certain circumstances, draw their ire away from their kid. Mm -hmm. But that's a tougher route to go down and doesn't always play out well. Right. Because it happens so early in the film, it gets us very quickly into the closest of these characters. It's not just the witty banter you usually have from these kind of things. You immediately see the depth of their understanding of each other and their needs. Mm -hmm. And we see even more of that after the conversation that Neil has with his dad about the annual and him having to pull out. And they're asking him, like, so what are you going to do then? 
and he's like, What I have to do? Drop the annual. Well, I wouldn't lose too much sleep over. It's just a bunch of jerks trying to impress Nola. I don't care. I don't give a damn about any of it. <laughs> you can tell how much Neil is lying to himself. Mm-hmm. It's so sad. It really, really is. But yeah, I think they do an excellent job setting up that relationship with Neil and Mr. Perry. And the tragic payoff of that relationship is earned. Yeah, oh, yeah, definitely. Circling back a little bit to the close of the, of the friend group, they do a good job with the costuming where all these kids are already in their school blacks, but Todd is wearing this kind of ugly taupe thing. Mm-hmm. And it helps make him feel more, more like an outsider, more like he has kind of something to prove and something to kind of grow into. And he does, and yeah. uh, it works really well. Yeah, we, we talked quite a bit last time about how Todd's arc is pretty important throughout the film and him trying to figure out who he wants to be in this new environment. Actually, a really interesting scene that we I didn't get to talk about last time draws some parallels between Todd and Cameron. So... When they're first given the assignment to write a poem for Mr. Keating's class, Todd is struggling with it and he like keeps starting over and whatnot. And at one point, him and Neil are goofing off and Neil like steals his notes and starts reading them out loud and they're like chasing each other around the room over their beds. Uh, eventually, Cameron comes in to complain about all the noise and then Neil immediately takes his notes too. <laughs> what are you guys doing? I'm tra- Cameron has the same exact reaction and it's really interesting how that is drawing parallels between the two of them that eventually Todd has to move past. Yeah. And when they're chasing each other around the room, it's it's kind of this invitation to play that Todd doesn't really have. You get the sense that Todd maybe hasn't had a lot of friends who wanted to like hang out in, in frivolous ways with him. Yeah. And as Neil's kind of inviting them all along on this, which, again, very much like Puck from the play, it's a good way to show like that they all have this invitation and that Cameron chose not to take it. Mm-hmm. So we haven't talked about possibly the best scene in the movie, which is wild to me because I love it so much. It's also like the gayest scene in the movie. It really is deeply, deeply homoerotic. If you haven't seen the movie in a while, there's this great scene where Todd is having a sad because his parents got him a writing kit for his birthday. It's like a nice pen and it's, it's a desk organizer set yeah they got him the same thing last year and the year before and Neil starts singing the praise of his writing set like god i think you're underestimating the value of this desk set i mean the fact it's the shape is it's rather aerodynamic isn't it you can feel it this desk set wants to fly encouraging todd just throwing it off the roof it's such a kind earnest way to help Todd get through this and like make this into something very fun. Again, it's Neil inviting Todd to play because he probably would not have thought of doing that. And it's, I don't know, it's really nice. It's... I also really love the line that caps that scene off. Todd makes a notice about like losing the set or it being destroyed and like Neil reassures. Well, I wouldn't worry. You'll get another one next year. <laughs> I think I only commented that I feel like that was the first scene that was written, or or one of the first scenes that was written, and then the movie grew up around that. This is this core of the movie that, like, everything else is kind of growing out from that. Yeah. The fun character bringing out the fun in somebody else, the rebellion against authority, the dangers of cycles. And it's one of the many small little scenes that build this relationship between Neil and Todd that, honestly, the film 
has so much other stuff going on it does a good job of hiding just how important that relationship is and ends up being at the end of the film the bit where todd runs off alone because he doesn't know how to process neil's death is really impactful in that way just like this like tiny dark figure running out across the snow yeah and i love how everything grows quiet in those scenes grief is very often silent and even the background music gives it space Mm mm-hmm And I love that direction for that. I love how stark it feels against the rest of the film because the outside is covered in snow. It's all like whites and blacks and browns and grays. And that's exactly what grief feels like. And this is a heavy episode. Let's let's just over to a more frivolous movie. All right. Tell me about Wild Child. Well, Wild Child is uh, loud and colorful. The director has a long career as an editor. Like, he's won awards for things like The Full Monty, Notting Hill. He did Last Crusade. He also did Mirror Mirror. You can't win them all. He's only directed a few movies. I think that he maybe is more comfortable there. He went back to editing, and that's kind of what he does. Working as an editor, you see a lot of the shots that directors make, and then the shots that actually end up in film. And I think that is probably one of the better ways to transition into directing. But... Not everyone has the spark or inclination to direct. And I give him props for trying it out, but if it's not for him, it's totally understandable. Right. And I mean, I don't know if he just, if it was like a passion project, if he was just having fun with some friends. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I wish I could tell you, I couldn't find much. Dead Post Society is a storied movie. This one, there are no like PhD theses being written about Wild Child's website. Yeah. I will say, the writer, Daughter of Roald Dolph. Huh. Yeah. I know it's shitty to like describe women in the context of the men in their lives, but I was like, huh, Lucy Doll, what an interesting name. Oh, okay, that's why. Yeah. And she's done some other stuff. Like she's helped with some of the adaptions of uh, her dad's work, but currently she runs a, a food blog, which is nice. There wasn't much else of note on like the other creators that I could find. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure I might have missed stuff, but whatever. Yeah. I did find out that Emma Roberts is currently dating Murtaugh from the Aragon movie. So that's a thing. <laughs> Weird. You forgot that Aragon had a movie, didn't you? No, I literally was talking about it with my wife yesterday. Wow, I'm sorry. <laughs> Stop having those long, sad conversations. <laughs> no good for you. I wish I had a good, like, uh, wild child. They gave the script on a plane kind of thing, like uh, the post, but I, yeah. I, I don't. I think part of it is, A, it's not as well-remembered of a film, and B, it's a mostly British production, and... From what I can tell, there's not as much of a behind-the-scenes like film culture in British productions as there is in the U.S. Like we love to read about all the ins and outs of filmmaking here, and Hollywood is completely built on it. Trade guilds have a lot of power and clout, and from what I know, that's not the case in the U.K. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that it's there a bit, but it doesn't have quite the same reach the same reach the same kind of buzz mm-hmm. maybe not the same like urgency to document also while we're here recommending things uh if you want to learn more about the uh, secret and forgotten histories of uh hollywood's first century you should check out you must remember this it's a podcast that's about filmmaking so that's about all i got for wild child i think i did like is that they made the conscious choice to have the malibu sequences be these like bright garish scenes with just a bunch of colors and we get to england and the the color grade shifts thoroughly like mm-hmm. they've desaturated a lot they've moved the black point up and the white point down everything feels gray and sad Mm -hmm. which is a good way to get us into poppy's head for all this Mm -hmm. 
I mean, it also reflects the very different climates between the two areas. Yeah. Although we do get more saturated color as the film goes on and Poppy acclimates. Exactly, which I think is a really good conscious choice. And during the sequences where she's gotten acclimated, she's very happy here, but things have gone wrong and she's going to have to get herself expelled, basically. There is sunlight ever, but she's constantly in shadow or moving through dark spaces or she's silhouetted against the light. Like she's got all this darkness that is not letting her be in this happy, bright space. Mm Mm-hmm. Which tracks, like, they talk about seasonal affective disorder early in the film. It rains 200 days out of the year. You will definitely get S80. She is sad. Seasonal affective disorder. Although, beyond setting up that color grade shift, a lot of the early Malibu scenes are not doing a whole lot. Like, we've talked about the weird superfluousness of Poppy's sister. Mm Mm-hmm. And there's just some other weird stuff, like the framing between the two sisters sharing a bed at the beginning when the sister is concerned about her going to England. I believe you. On this most recent rewatch, I was busy roasting some vegetables, so I wasn't paying super a lot of attention then, but I trust you. The way that scene is framed is just real male gazy. Mm, that makes sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I'm not surprised, just disappointed. Yeah. Even though siblings sharing a bed can be totally fine. Like, that's not yeah. necessarily inherently it, weird. Yeah. Yeah. It's just that the way the movie shoots it is definitely weird. Yeah. It's also weird because of the age of the two. Like, Poppy is in high school, and her sister only seems like a few years younger, even though she's making a PB&J sandwich at the beginning of the film and is wondering who's going to cut the crust off of it. But who's going to cut the crust off my sandwiches? You're going to be fine, Mom. I promise. If you want a, like, nine-year-old sister, just cast a nine-year-old. <laughs> right. Also, don't cut the crust off your bread. I'm baffled by crust cutters. Yeah, I, like, I don't get it either. <laughs> crust cutters. A love story. Another thing I want to talk about is Poppy's hypocrisy in this. I think they were trying really hard to have her be this avatar of Valley Girl things, mm-hmm. but a lot of them don't make sense. Like, she's both a vegetarian and a Buddhist, but also she has, like, clothes made from animals, but where she's like... Hey, watch the Schmear girlfriend. 200 goats died for this. And I feel like there's this weird disconnect between her ethics and her fashion. I definitely get that, but I definitely also feel that there may be some commentary going on there. That makes sense. I, I don't think it's well done commentary. Right. I think there's they're trying to do some commentary things, but not quite enough of it lands. Because we're supposed to like Poppy. She's a, a nice person. People keep saying this over and over. Also, in my notes, I, I miswrote it as 200 ghosts died for this, which <laughs> now there's nothing I can get behind. I think it's also that like no one really calls her out on it. It's left to the audience to do. Right. And especially with how quickly some of that dialogue passes, not everyone's going to catch that. It's kind of like how a lot of the mean bits and mean girls, they're supposed to be mean, they're supposed to be caustic, but also they're like fun. And so we kind of don't pay attention to the problematicness of them. Mm-hmm. We had similar quibbles with the mask about a year ago yeah exactly yeah that's probably a better example that people might be more familiar with i don't know i think more people are familiar with mean girls but if you listen to this podcast we haven't talked about mean girls in and of itself we've like brought it up a few times but we had a whole episode on well half an episode on the mask yeah honestly it's weird that mean girls isn't here but this specifically with only prep schools not schools in general or yeah. i'm sure that mean girls would have been uh trying to make it to the top Yeah, and some of these schools are questionable whether they fall into that category, like Sky High, but 
Sky High was a fun choice, and it was different. We, we needed something to cut the attention. It's fine, it's fine. Speaking of cutting the tension, let's talk about that messy gay bench. Ah, uh, yes. So, during their, like, prom annual, Freddy and Poppy end up on this, like, weird S-shaped bench. Imagine if you had the letter S with a seat in the cups of the S, and that's how you sat. Yeah. I guess it's there to, like, give people slightly more privacy, but they specifically use it to, like, have a conversation, and it is just seems so awkward to use that bench for that purpose. I mean, I kind of get that it exists as essentially the balcony from Romeo and Juliet. Like, it's a physical separation to keep the lovers from getting too close. Leave room for Jesus. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Leave room for Frank Lloyd Wright. Uh, <laughs> but it's kind of weird. It is also in the middle of the room, and I get that it makes more sense as, like, a signature piece for the room than, like, an actual piece of furniture. It also just seems weird for the rest of the architecture of the school, mm. which is very traditional, and this is a very modern piece of design. Maybe, like, donated or, like, a former student was an architecture person and they... Like, it goes along with the way they've decorated for the dance, and I guess theoretically it could be that they are... Well, no, that doesn't make sense, them being off campus for the dance, mm-hmm. because th- there's the drunken debauchery scene that we don't actually get. <laughs> and then, like, they are being chewed out by the headmistress the day after. Well, as I understand it, Drippy got totally carried away by Mr. Nellist and Miss Reese Withers after she lay in a pool of her own vomit. Actually, it was Kate's vomit, Mrs. Kingsley. I was... Just lying in it. On campus. I also have trouble imagining a school renting benches for a dance. Well, it's like, it wouldn't be renting benches. It would be renting a venue that has the bench in right. it. Right. Okay, sure. I get you. Yeah. Yeah. Like, lots of high schools rent venues for their important events. Yeah. I mean, I know my problem is that a local eatery with, like, an open space. Yeah. However, that scene also goes as of the Mr. Darcy's. Ah, uh, yes. We've talked before about how much we just really admire the outfits of these of like the mr darcy costume on these two teenage girls mm-hmm. sounds weird when i say it in that way <laughs> my bad but they like, have it like that's the, one of the only scenes where they're all that forceful until the end of the film and i kind of wish they were just always like that they were always just in these like period outfits being like the enforcers of chastity <laughs> it could be a real, really weird thing and i'm super into that mm-hmm. just wandering around like no leave room for mrs bennett leave room for lady Catherine's money Here's the thing in my notes that I do not recall and don't have enough context for, but maybe you do. Um, so I have a note here about snapping glasses, and I can't remember what that's a reference to. Oh, yeah, there's a bit where one of the teachers just gets so mad that his glasses break. Oh, that's right. That's right. <laughs> it's a weird scene. I feel like somebody thought of it and decided just to, to go with it. Yeah, because isn't that the like French teacher? Yeah, this is one of Poppy's many pranks. He sees the disc that incriminates her, and he goes, Poppy. <laughs> Glasses break. Mm-hmm. It's it's very weird, and it's funny. There are some interesting jokes that actually land in the film, but they are so far removed from most of the plot. Mm-hmm. There's a Jesus joke that happens in the headmistress's oh, yeah. office that's like legitimately made us laugh out loud. Mm-hmm. Who is it? Jesus Christ! Oh dear, we were led to believe you had a beard and sandals. Now we'll have to change that stained glass window in the school chapel. Oh, 
a bad filmmaking thing that I definitely want to talk about that I don't think we have. So there are some terrible composite shots in this. I did not notice them. Uh, go on. So the there's one in particular that I'm thinking of. It's early on the film. Oh, is it the one where Poppy's like... In the foreground yeah. with the headphones yeah. and everyone's in the background and yeah. we're like, she's eavesdropping on their conversation. Yeah, like something from... What, what was it that had that we were compositing we were talking about? Like something from The Shadow. Yeah, exactly. The, the Shadow has a similar scene where... They have to have a character in the foreground and the background in focus at the same time because that's how they wanted to set up that shot, and it looks awful. I'm wondering if they had another shot with Poppy doing the headphone thing and it, the editing wasn't working or the lighting balance wasn't good or there was like something in the shot that they couldn't easily remove, like a, a boom mic or whatever. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I don't know, but it it looks really bad, and I really wish they would have just oscillated focus. A lot of films, when you're having conversations between people, they'll do, like, shot-reverse shot. And I think they could have done something similar here with focus and not even had to change the shot composition, and it would have worked much better. I will say that changing the focus like that, if a movie only does it once, it feels kind of weird. Mm-hmm. So I can see how they might not want to do that. But also, I mean, this movie definitely has a lot of, we just found the new copy of Windows Movie Maker traditions, so maybe they wouldn't have cared as much. Yeah. I still think, unless they were incredibly strapped for time and reshoots, just going back and doing a shot reverse shot implementation of that scene would have worked way better than what they put in. Yeah. And while it didn't like stand out to me as noticeable to talk about now, now that you bring it up, yeah, it is a really weird thing. There's a lot of little bits of, I guess, cheapness, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, it, it did not have a big budget. It might be that the cinematographer wasn't like used to working in film and like with the kind of stuff you have for film. He had a lot of like British TV stuff in this. Like he made some movies as Prime Minister. He made if you see God tell him that kind of thing. Okay. He, he made Stonewall. I didn't realize that. That's nice. The the good one, not okay. the new one. Okay. When you first said film, I thought you were talking about like actual film as opposed to digital. Oh no, sorry. Um, <laughs> you're, you're talking about movies versus television, which right. makes sense. Yeah. yeah. And in television, especially. In the pre-digital era, you didn't mess with your settings once the camera was going, because that means it's, you're probably going to waste film if you're not really careful. Especially a lot of British television is filmed uh, like single-camera sitcom style. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Yeah. Sorry, I'm just imagining Penda's Fen, but like with a budget. <laughs> so, just to kind of keep it going, it was kind of fun last time. What would happen if, if the new kids at the school swapped? This being Todd going to Abbey Mount and Poppy Moore going to Welton. Let's just... Pretend that nobody cares about gender for these. Or nobody cares about the gender of these characters. Just everyone decides to just accept that. I mean, we could also just, like, rule 63 it. Sure. So we've got, like, Pip Moore and um, Tabitha Todd Wiener. Anderson. <laughs> Todd Wiener. <laughs> Tiffany, maybe. Like, Tiffany doesn't seem like an 1950s name. Tabitha, though. Tabitha. Tabitha sure. Anderson. Tabitha Anderson, sure. All right. So... Let's, I guess, start with Tabitha Anderson going to Abbey Mount. Um, Quiet, doesn't have a great relationship with parents. Honestly, very similar to our protagonist from Centurions, who we kind of did the same thing with. Yeah. There is the interesting complication that Tabitha does have a sibling who went to the school before them. Mm -hmm. And so there's kind of that legacy-ness about them. I think it would be very interesting to see who Tabitha would fall in with, whether it would be the same clique that Poppy falls in with or with Harriet. Yeah. Tabitha would be incredibly meek, and so Harriet kind of strong-arming her and 
taking her under the wing as, you know, the American student and kind of using it as a point of prestige, I guess. Yeah, I can see that. I can also imagine that if I'm a writer and I have a character like Harriet and also I know that my protagonist had a sibling who went there before, I would definitely explore that relationship. Like maybe they were friends and that went sour or Tabitha's big sister like bullied Harriet or something. That could be really interesting. There's kind of a like generational cruelty going on. That would be fun to explore. Mm -hmm. But I do think it would kind of end up in a pretty similar direction to how Annabelle Fritton would have would have done the Abbey Mount. Yeah. Again, domesticated child. Uh, what happened if Dead Poet Society has Punk Kid Pip? All of the comparisons with Cameron pretty much go out the window. It's going to be more so Pip and Charlie trying to one-up each other. Mm-hmm. And Neil definitely doesn't have to like pull them into the group as much as he would Todd. There's just not that shyness there. Right. I think he and Nwanda would get into a lot of trouble. I imagine that Keating's kind of earnest, introspective approach would clash very badly with Pip's slightly superficial self-centeredness. Mm-hmm. And I, at least at first, I'm sure the you know the film would do the a whole thing where like they learn to grow from each other and all that jazz. Yeah. But I think it might be interesting to see how Pip and Keating would pull the characters in different directions. Yeah. I also think the addition of Pip pretty much removes the necessity for Knox Overstreet because I think Pip is going to fill a lot of the same role with the romantic subplot. I think the existence of like decency, honor, class, good taste removes the necessity for Knox Overstreet. But you know, you do you. But no, like this is would definitely be like, what if more annoying Knox Overstreet was your protagonist? Yeah, like take the like worst aspects of Nuanda and Knox and mash them together and you get kind of what we expect Pip to be like at the beginning of the film. Well, maybe like a dash of, what's his face? Uh, the roommate from class. Oh, Skip. Well, like maybe a bit of Skip from class. Does Neil still die in this continuity? I definitely think that there's much more support from Pip to Neil in like do your own thing and that may give Neil the confidence to actually stand up to his father. Mm-hmm. I can also imagine that Pip gets Neil into some other trouble and he never like gets into the acting thing. So mm-hmm. maybe it's like he gets in trouble gets expelled but he doesn't like pursue a thing on his own. Mm-hmm. They like make some other trouble as a group. Yeah. Dead Poet Society with our hypothetical Pip is a very different film. Yeah. Unlike last time where we realized that Wild Child is very different if it swaps its protagonist with some trainings, whereas some trainings is about the same, both of these are very different movies. So I think that says good things about both of them. They both have characters who have more agency and are doing things at the center. Mm -hmm. So yeah, before we move on to our alignment charts for this episode, let's quickly go over the uh, more pretentious school name. So from Dead Poet Society, we once again have Welton Academy. And Wild Child, we have Abbey Mount. I'm going to say Welton Academy, if only because it has Academy in it. I feel like Abbey Mount is like just, that could be anything. Yeah. Neither of these schools won most pretentious in our last round. Yeah, I definitely think between the two, Welton Academy is more pretentious. Mm-hmm. For sure. Okay, so why don't we go ahead and get into our alignment charts? I'll tell you exactly why. None of these characters are from either of these movies. <laughs> I honestly think that's what makes them interesting. <laughs> that's fair. So, for... Prep is kind of still a knockout. It's Hilary Faye from Saved versus Catherine from Cruel Intentions. And Catherine is, once again, say it with me. I'm the Marsha fucking Brady of the Upper East Side. I do think that Hilary Faye is the character that has come closest to actually giving Catherine competition. Mm-hmm. Like, Hilary Faye has that entire school wrapped around her finger. 
and she nearly gets three students expelled from her schemes. Mm -hmm. There is definitely some of that evil preppiness going on with Hillary Fay. There's definitely that hiding behind this false facade as well. It's just that Catherine is more so because of the type of film that Cruel Intentions is. Right. Catherine has more access to resources than Hillary Fay does. I think that's probably a big part of it. If mm-hmm. Hillary Fay had more money, she would be more Catherine. Yes. But also, Hillary Fay winds up getting a little bit redeemed. She, on the path towards redemption at the end, uh, yeah. she is saved. Um, <laughs> whereas uh, Catherine does not. Yeah. She's on a path to undemption. Rehab. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, you told me her parents did not shove her into rehab after the events of that film. Next, for most nerd, we have young Sherlock Holmes and Chelsea from Centronians. I mean, it's Sherlock fucking Holmes. Yeah, like, Chelsea has glasses, but <laughs> Sherlock Holmes has, people used to recall it, literally everything he's ever seen and make infinite connections. He has a mind palace. I mean, he's also, like, sworn off relationships after the disastrous events of that film. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot fall in love. They, they keep me from solving crimes. For most goth, we have Cassandra, again from Saved, and Andrea, again from Centrinians. Here I'm going to go with Cassandra. I know a lot of times this has come down to more of a character, and Cassandra's definitely more of a character than Andrea is. Most characters from most movies are more of a character than characters from Centrinians. <laughs> yes. Like, Centrinians characters are more just, like, archetypes. Mm-hmm. They're in, like, Stephanie Meyer characters. <laughs> oh yes tell me i'm wrong <laughs> you're not wrong uh, i think andrea is more technically goth though like cassandra is is more punk thing than goth and we've established that punk and goth are the same thing but that's, that's sort of a silly rule whoever made that was probably wrong <laughs> i i do need to bring up that this is our podcast and we do get to make the rules that's and... true we're like into gods <laughs> also cassandra smokes Smoking is definitely a very goth thing. Mm, that's fair. I'll allow it. So Cassandra moves on, and Andrea is probably going to be expelled. <laughs> Lastly, for most jock, we have Channing Tatum versus the Avatar of Basketball, who has no name, nor history, nor family. He will own no land, carry no titles, father no children. He will only be the basketball. I mean... Yes, we have the Avatar of Basketball from Finding Forrester, but it's not Channing Tatum, it's Duke Orsina. <laughs> From She's the Man, played by by Channing Tatum. Again, I think this is the first character to give the Avatar of Basketball a run for his money. (laughs) Sorry, I really really like this Avatar of Basketball bit. It makes me happy. I'm glad we never learned his name. Um, I will say that points for for Duke. He does, like, teach someone else to be better at, uh, at sports. Like, he... Not only is good at sports, he propagates sports knowledge. Yeah, he's a good sportsman. Yeah. Which is definitely not something that can be said of the Avatar of Basketball. No. Also, his name is Duke Orsina. <laughs> like, they took the character from the play, who is a Duke, and just made that his first name. <laughs> what would you? How would you make Orsina into a modern name, though? Oscar? Hmm. I'll allow it. Oscar's not a jock name. Oscar's <laughs> a nerd name. Yes. Although, like, it definitely gets shortened to Oz. Mm, I'll allow it, yeah. Okay, so are we, are we giving it to Duke Orsina? I mean, I still think the Avatar of Basketball is probably more sporty, but I think that Duke Orsina deserves to win something, so <laughs> I'll allow it. 
We also know his name. He's more, he's more of a character. Yeah, he is, that. he is distinctly more of a character. So uh, the Avatar of Basketball must at last reincarnate into, I don't know, the Avatar of Badminton. I think that finally bring, uh, brings us to our final Ed segment. What's moving to the finals? I think Dead Poets Society is a better film. Oh, yeah. Wild Child is fine, but Dead Poets Society is like an emotional gut punch every time. Yeah. Dead Poets Society has beat out some like contenders, whereas Wild Child has had a pretty easy time. Yeah. Dead Poets Society went up against Saved, which both of us love. <laughs> yeah. It just... It was not quite as good as Dead Poets Society. And then it went up against She's the Man. Right, which I have strong feelings about. <laughs> yeah. Many people have strong feelings about that movie. Yes. Whereas Wild Child went up against Finding Forrester, which honestly no one remembers beyond the You're the Man Now dog meme. And even that meme is not very, like, potent. Yeah. It, it's, it's an older meme. <laughs> the, the blood has gone thin. And then St. Trinian's, which... Which I love dearly, but also is not that good, per se. Yeah. It is a very fun film, but it's not very well made. Yeah. Which means that, wow, Dead Post Society is going to be in the finals. I don't think anyone's surprised by that. No. <laughs> it is very much the Moana of this bracket. Yeah. It was a known quantity going in. It is a beloved film for very good reason. I think it's one of the only films that people have heard of from this bracket. Like Sky High, but we're nerds. Yeah. Of all the films on the bracket, this is the one people have most likely heard of. But I kind of like the bracket for that reason. There's a lot of just weird, obscure stuff here. Oh yeah, Let's, honestly, I love this podcast because I find new, weird stuff that I would not have otherwise. Mm -hmm. And uh, what's coming up next week? What's uh, Dead Poets Society going to be going up against? Dead Poets Society will be going up against either Mona Lisa Smile or School Ties. And honestly... Going into this episode, I knew what was going to win. I don't know what's going next week. It's going to be tough because we've enjoyed both of those films. They are both Oscar Beatty, but in good way. And they have some really good acting and really heartfelt themes. Yeah. They are doing the characters and the themes justice. Yeah. So if you want to find out how that goes, make sure to follow us on social media. So Facebook, Twitter... Wherever catch your pods. And until next time, this has been the Gratuitous Podding Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.